0: we have something called CrowdStrike Racing and uh, we do a lot of CXO events around it. So we invite CEOs, CIOs, uh, chief security officers. And we do um, basically a kind of a full round table, like a half a day round table with uh, half a day to a full day talking about security threats. And then you know the folks will generally stay for the weekend and they'll get to see the cars and they'll get to sit in the car. Sometimes we give hot laps, um, not in my car because it, it only has uh, you know one seat in it, but it's worked out really, really well because it, it fuses like passion for racing. And a lot of people that come like motorsports, some people that come don't know anything about it and they leave as a motorsport fan. So it's worked out really well. And it has generated, you know, an amazing amount of of business for us. Like we would put people in, you know, customers and prospects in, you know, driving behind Mario Andretti. And if you've ever seen those commercials where Mario Andretti has a two person car, you know, some of the events we were racing at, we were the warm up act for Indy, right? So Indy race is like two hours and they got to fill a day. So they have other race series that, that they're in there. So we would take customers out to an Indy race weekend. We would race. And then we, um, I know Mario pretty well. We did a deal with him where he would actually take our customers and prospects in the back of an Indy car around a lap. And, you know, you can ask around how many people have been in the back seat of an Indy car with Mario Andretti. I almost guarantee you're not going to find anybody.
1: You're never going to forget that.
0: That's a once in a lifetime experience. Once in a lifetime, right? So, you know, we've been successful with that. It's been a great event. People know us for it. Um, We've transitioned that into a sponsorship with Mercedes-Benz in Formula One, uh, which is like they, they just have won the last six years. It's unbelievable. So we're involved in that. And we've got a lot of customer engagement from that as well. So we took kind of a non-traditional route. You know, a lot of people get invited to golf events and Super Bowls and all, but anyone who's been to a Super Bowl or a golf outing or a basketball game or whatever. And, you know, we've had CEOs that come to the event. They've been to everything. Not one of them has ever been in an IndyCar with Mario Andretti. So it's, uh, it's a special event.
1: From Foundation Capital, this is b 2 as CEO, the show about how to scale your enterprise startup and how to grow from founder to CEO. I'm Ashil Gard, general partner at Foundation Capital. My very special guest for this episode is George Kurtz, the founder and CEO of CrowdStrike, the most successful security company of the past decade. This was a fantastic and in-depth conversation in which George and I get into everything from hiring to board composition, to balancing a hybrid product and services model. And I asked George for very specific advice for all of you security founders listening. This is a meaty one, so let's just dig in. Well, George, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Great to be here and uh, always a pleasure.
1: Thank you. George, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your background.
0: Well, I have an interesting background. Uh, I've always been a computer guy. Started from a really young age. Started programming basic, I think, when I was in fourth grade and had a Commodore computer and then went- In went fourth up.
1: grade? Fourth wow. grade, you, yeah. You were way ahead of the rest of yeah. life.
0: And ba- it was a Commodore. I'm dating myself a little bit. It was a CPM. Uh, I,
1: I had a Commodore too.
0: Okay. I always loved computers, ran a Bolton board when I was in high school. When I got to college, interesting enough, I, I didn't necessarily want to go- directly into computers. I wanted to get a business degree. And so I got an accounting degree and started my career as an intern at Price Waterhouse. While I was an intern there, it was so manual. Essentially, we were using 16 column and 10 key um, calculators and just taking forever, just transferring numbers. So I got really bored one day and I wrote a bunch of programs to extract all this information out of the mainframe computer and pretty much cut hundreds of hours out of the audio engagement. So I was either going to get promoted or fired because obviously that's billable hours. And somebody took note and I got drafted into the Price Waterhouse computer group, if you will, and uh, really took an early interest in computer security in about 1993. And that's how I got into the security group there. And you know, uh, I can go on and on, but that's sort of the early age of how I started to really get into computers. So you've been in computer since fourth grade and computer security since 1993. Since 1993,
1: yeah. Tell us a little bit about what your journey in computer security, because, you know, security has evolved, and I want to come back to the market and how security has evolved, yeah. but let's, let's start with your story since 93.
0: So I got really bored in financial auditing, and I got drafted into this uh, computer group at Pricewaterhouse, and it was more computer controls, and, and that was a little bit boring, and I was always... Hacking different computers. Um, I went to a, a pretty long training uh, camp, if you will, for consultants at Pricewaterhouse. I mean, it was months and months in Florida. And I was always hacking the different computers they had there. So, again, somebody took note of that and said, Hey, you'd be a great person for our computer security group that we're just starting. So, I said, How big is this? And they're like, Well, you'd be the fifth person. I said, Okay, great. So, I got into computer security because of just being curious and there was a guy that I pestered who was doing a lot of it. And I I always wanted to work with him. And, uh, you know, he sort of blew me off a little bit, you know, I was a younger guy and, you know, he had a bunch of work and I automated at the time it was a computer bulletin, uh, not bulletin board, but it was, it was dialing war dialing for modems. <laughs> and a lot of the stuff they were doing was manual. So I, I wrote programs to automate all that stuff. And then the guy said, okay, you know, you're in, that's how I got into it. And he basically said, Hey, this internet thing might have some legs and people are thinking about firewalls. They were just kind of co- commercially com- becoming available. You know, why don't you figure all that stuff out? And, and that's what I did. I figured it out, how to secure it and how to put controls around it and how to hack them. And, uh, you know, I wrote all these things up, created a lot of methodologies, which ultimately led to writing the, my first book, Hacking Exposed, in late 1999. That's great. And so you were
1: you were at Pricewaterhouse for the first few years, and and you were starting to, you know, you self taught yourself computer security, which is true for a lot of people in security. There wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't a lot
0: of formal education around computer security right. in the early days. How did you transition to becoming an entrepreneur? Well, so I, I was at Price Waterhouse for a number of years, and a guy I worked for went over to ENY, spent two years over there. You know, it was like a pretty young guy, very senior in the organization, but wasn't a partner. I think it was twenty seven or something like that. And they, they basically said, Hey, you got to be 35 before your partner. And I, I just didn't want to wait around for that. So I saw an opportunity in the security space for identification of uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, it was called vulnerability assessment. And yep. um, there were a couple of early firms like internet security systems that I had really helped since they were a small company and a uh, guy that was running it, his name was Tom Noonan. he was a good guy, you know, IPO the company and they were building things and, I thought they were, I helped them in a, in a bunch of areas and they, want, they went off into uh, intrusion prevention systems, network ones. And I thought there was still a market for finding vulnerabilities and, and creating risk scoring around that for large enterprises. And so I jumped to start my first company called Foundstone, which really, it, it took, instead of a desktop scanner, it basically took an enterprise approach to finding and prioritizing vulnerabilities. And that was in late 1999.
1: And what was that like? You know, did you end up raising money from VCs? Tell us a little bit about sort of the founding journey.
0: Yeah. So in, in 1999, when you're a consultant trying to build now a software product, you get a lot of people going, well, how you're, you're a consultant, how are you going to build a product? So we raised some money from a group out in Seattle. we got the company off the ground. We hit it off with uh, the, the principal over there. His name was George Klute. We did our first round at three and a half million. And, you know, you got to learn the ropes, right? Is so that three and a half million evaluation valuation or three and a half million raised? Three and a half million raised on, it was probably three and a half million valuation or so, you know, or four million. It was pretty small. But, you know, you had to learn the ropes, uh, deal with attorneys and just understand cap tables and uh, how to structure option plans. And, you know, you just got to figure it out, right? And, and I'm, I'm one for if there's a passion I have, I'm, I'm going to dive into it and, you know, in a couple of months, know you know, as much as I possibly can. So I did that, found good attorneys and uh, got the company off the ground. And then 2001 hit and we needed to raise some more money. And if you remember, well, the interesting thing is we got funded March of 2000 and uh, you remember the, yeah, perfect timing. Perfect, perfect timing. perfect timing. And then, you know, the market took a dive and then, you know, we, we ran through our three and a half million eighteen 18 months later, what have you. And then 2001, we needed to raise more money, and that was a nuclear winter. And I never forget, you know, all the times that we had to go looking for cash, and and just just wasn't available. And I, there's a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of younger entrepreneurs listening to this that haven't lived through raising money in 2001. It was a pretty tough time. And how I mean, Do you remember how many VCs you pitched to before you got money? Well, we we pitched we pitched a lot of VCs. I mean, we we went all over the place. Myself and and my CFO and. Uh, it was just everything was shut down, and uh, you know, people were just, just like they were just burnt out from the dot com bust. And I never forget, you know, we we went into this VC meeting, and and uh, you know, there was kind of you always have the executive slide, right? Which is, <laughs> you know, he was your executive team, and the guy was so pompous uh, that we met with. He just went down the list, and he said, "Yeah, you know," he no, just started crossing names off of people like you're going to have to replace like just like with a two minute bio and uh like he had no idea like who the people were and you know he's like oh this marketing guy he's he's got a good background and you know he can stay and ultimately the guy was I fired the guy because he didn't perform and so it was just amazing to go through those sort of experiences where you have guys like just checking your name off the list yeah no you don't have enough experience you know so, you know, including myself was like, well, you know, it's good you started it, but now nah, we, we don't know if you're going to be able to take it to the next level. So needless to say, we didn't go with that group and, um, you know, just lessons learned on how people try to pattern match and sometimes make mistakes. If both sides of the coin are hard. If you don't pattern match, you know, it, 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 it's, it's hard
1: to evaluate so many companies. On the other hand, as you rightly said, uh, very often pattern matching ends up in the wrong, with the wrong answer. Yeah. And I definitely learned that the hard
0: way. Well, and I think, you know, to that vein, I mean, there's always some pattern matching you have to do, but a big part is you have to look for the hunger that people have and you're investing in people. You know, this is, this is what you do as, for a profession. And I know when I make investments, you know, I want to know the space, but I also want to make sure that the people are hungry. Typically I find people who have uh, trauma in their life, you know, generally are hungry and, uh, Basically, knock down walls to get stuff done. So.
1: so, tell us a little bit about your leadership style, and I'm sure it's evolved over time. But what do you look for in people? In particular, as you're hiring go-to-market people, as someone who you know who has a lot of product and engineering and technology experience, as you hire sales and marketing executives, what do you look for?
0: Well, it's uh, it's a great question, and you know, I think there's a combination of looking for people that are hungry and gritty and sometimes blue collar, you know, there's always that debate, do you, do you hire street smarts or book smarts, right? And I think over the years, I've tended to do better with kind of street smart, you know, knife fighter type people that, that just, you know, want to win. And one of the things, uh, and I always ask this, when I interview people is, you know, I sort of give them the choice, like, what drives you more? Is it the will to win? Or is it the hatred to lose? You have to think about that, right? So do you really just want to win? And everybody wants to win. But you hate to lose more than you want to win. And it's interesting because, you know, when you look at it and you, and, and I believe, and you talk to the top people that you look at across all the sports, it's the people who hate to lose that are the most driven. That's typically what I look for is uh, competitive folks who have domain expertise in their area, but are also team players. And, you know, in the early days when we started CrowdStrike, we had hired just top people all over the place We had a very, and we still do a very rigorous hiring process where even if you're a rock star, if you don't fit in culturally, you're not going to be able to join. So I hired folks that are team players and a cultural fit. So obviously we want smart folks we want driven people, but we also want a cultural fit. And I have the saying, you know, you want to play for the name on the front of the jersey or the back of the jersey. If you're just playing for the name on the back of the jersey, you're probably not going to fit in real well because you know, it takes a village and it takes a team to be able to win. So what I'm saying is we've turned down a lot of really smart people over the years who would be disruptive to the team because they were all about themselves as opposed to collectively winning as a team.
1: Got it. I'm going to fast forward and we, we may go
0: back and forth, but tell us a little bit about the founding story of CrowdStrike. Yeah. So the founding story of CrowdStrike is at McAfee. Well, I sold a company called on to McAfee, spent seven years there candidly didn't think I'd make seven years there. And, um, I'm surprised you, were, you survived seven years at McAfee. I mean, that's, yeah, it was. It first like couple, place. I, I had, I had to be there for a few years, you know, with, with earn and, uh, and then I was going to leave. And then there's new CEO came in and, and, uh, he's basically cleared out the executive team and I worked for him and he said, okay, you, you kind of know what you're doing. So why don't you help me? So I stayed for a couple of years and We'd kind of re-up every two years um, because I had a bunch of people pounding me to be a CEO and other venture guys calling me going, hey, I got a a deal. You know, I was going to go take a CEO job. And and then he came to me and said, hey, I want you to be the CTO. And I said, I don't want to be the CTO. I'm, you know, CEO. I like running things. I was general manager. And uh, he said, no, just take the job. So I turned it down twice. And the third time he said, look, we're going to sell the company. Just give me two years and, and help me out on this thing. So I said, okay, fine. So it turned out to be one of the best uh, jobs that I had originally turned down because it gave me a much better appreciation really for how the entire sort of AV industry was just challenged. To me, when people were buying security, they were still being breached. They weren't, they weren't buying the outcome that they, were, that they should be getting, right? If I'm buying security in general, I should be protecting myself. Yep. but They were still getting breached. And when I looked at the problem, it was like not just McAfee, you know, and I had a good run there. I won't say anything bad about them, but I had a good run. But it was McAfee semantic trend. Everyone was focused on stopping malware when they, when they should have just been thinking about stopping a breach. Right. And I always ask people, if you want to stack rank, what's important to you? Is it more important to stop a breach or more important to stop malware? And when you actually think about that, it's like, well, yeah, I guess it, yeah, I want to stop the breach. And malware is just a component of that. Well, if you want to stop the breach, why don't you focus on that? So that was one of the areas that I thought needed to be improved. Uh, and that dealt with static signatures and, and, you know, the thinking around leveraging artificial intelligence to find bad things without ever having seen them. And number two is I thought the architecture was all wrong. So this is in 2009, 10, 11. Everything to me looked like Siebel. And I thought it should look more like Salesforce, right? There was no foundational cloud platform company in security. It wasn't Checkpoint. It wasn't Palo Alto. It wasn't McAfee, Symantec. There was no equivalent service now, Salesforce and Workday, right? So the idea was how do we create the, the security cloud and start delivering endpoint security from the cloud itself and not build anything on premise? And I can tell you in the early days in starting the company, that was not a popular topic. The security, the cloud was scary and it was like, how is this all gonna work? And but you know, I, I saw the cloud as is, is bigger than security, and ultimately, you know, you were 2020. It it's all about cloud. So that was that was kind of the original thesis on starting the company. And uh that's that's basically how we got the thing going. That must have been quite,
1: you know, it was quite counterintuitive in 2011, 2012 to go all cloud for security. I mean, right. Even today, people would argue that you know, it's, it's hard to go all cloud for security. But eight, 10 years ago, you were really pioneering it. I mean, what was that like
0: with customers? Did you get a lot of pushback in the early days? Yeah, we, we certainly pioneered that. And um, there was a lot of pushback. I remember meeting in 2013 with a, uh, a large Swiss bank. And I went in and said, hey, I've got this great you know, new endpoint technology, it's going to save the world, cloud-based, cloud-native, right? They were like, cloud, what? You know, like cloud-native wasn't even really, these weren't even- it wasn't t- even a word, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? But it's all, you know, whatever it was called, it's all built in the cloud, right? Born in the cloud, built in the cloud. So they said, that's really cool. We like the idea of stopping breaches and, you know, looking across the attack spectrum. But, you know, we're Swiss bank, we're, we're never going to use the cloud. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Um, because I, I, knew them. I mean, I'd sold to them in the past. I said, you're the same bank that told me you weren't going to virtualize your data center. Right. And now everything was, was VMware. Uh, and you're the same bank that said you weren't going to use Linux in your data center. Cause you were using windows. Now everything's Linux. And you're the same bank that's telling me you're not going to use cloud. I said, you know what? I'm going to be back in a couple of years. And then we'll sign you up then. And they sort of chuckled, you know, I went on my way and they're like, did he just say that? And, and, uh, anyway, two years later, I went back and, and they became a big customer and they're still a big customer today. And we're, we're a foundational part of their security. So, you know, there's, it's a little bit of, um, the hard thing too, um, as a founder and someone who was pioneering cloud security was, a lot of people early days asked for the on-premise version. And this really is a lesson learned for, for a lot of founders is don't get caught in the trap of, okay, I'm gonna build a one-off for some big bank because they have to have it. And, and it's sexy to have this big bank and, you know, a million dollars of, of uh, ARR and we never fell into that trap. We never offered an on-premise version. Our agents run wherever, but the, the management, the brain, and those sort of things, everything is in the cloud. And I think it kind of gets back to the, you know, Benioff sort of model of like, there's no on-premise version of Salesforce. Like, you know, when you need it, let us know and we'll be here in the cloud. And I think that really served us well because so many people, spend too much effort in these one-offs and when you have two development models, one on-premise, one in the cloud, you, your features get cut in half and you dilute your spending and you dilute your focus and it's a disaster. So I've seen so many companies make the mistake of chasing the big deal and as a cloud company say, well, we can do a one-off and we'll, we'll create containers and ship out a rack to the customer and we'll make it work and it never works long-term for the company.
1: That, I think that's a great lesson uh, because founders are always tempted by the one, the one big deal that can change their future or their fortunes in the early days. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other lessons you learned early on at CrowdStrike that you'd love to share with other founders?
0: One of them is, you know, in, in hiring your sales team, you, you want to be able to hire them and, but not too early. Right. And I think the big thing is you, you want to be able to hire the right person to lead the sales organization. So, you know, one of the mistakes that, that I made is I hired the wrong type of salesperson for the first sales role. And the way I kind of look at salespeople is you, you have evangelical sellers, you have uh scalers and then you have coin operated sellers. Right. And the coin operated are, you know, they come out of Oracle, you know, yeah. very mature. They've got a legion of people, SES, you know, sales ops teams, all of that stuff. And they have products that are actually mature. And the mistake I made is I hired a guy who was a coin operated guy that I put in an evangelical role. And when in the early days, you don't have everything, it doesn't all work. And there's a lot of PowerPoint where, and uh, you know, I remember when he showed up, he says, okay, well, you know, where is it all? I said, well, it's on the PowerPoint. He's like, well, okay, but where is it? I'm like, it's on the PowerPoint. Like, yeah, we're building that. That's what it's going to look like. And You know, it's kind of a funny, you know, story that I tell now, but you know, you have to go out, we had something, but you have to go out and you have to basically, uh, you know, evangelize why someone needs endpoint security delivered from the cloud, never done before, right? Cloud is scary and no one's even done endpoint security from the cloud. So that was one of, uh, I would say a big lesson learned is hiring the wrong salesperson for the type of role that you The stage you were at, when you were
1: at that stage, you needed someone who could sell the dream, the evangelical right. salesperson, and and the Oracle salesperson is you know, yeah. is very about scaling and repeatability, right. and you're just more ready for that.
0: Yeah, it was you know he was all about turn the crank when you have a product that works, and you know we had you know, MVPs and things of that nature, but it didn't have every feature, and you have you have to find the the chief security officer who wants to buy into a company who's you know. He, has, he or she has the ability to actually help transform and realize that they're not going to have every, you're not going to be able to deliver everything they want they want, but they're going to be able to help you build out the
2: roadmap. Hi, I'm Aparna Thinnergren. I'm co-founder of Arise AI. Hope you don't mind if I interrupt this episode to tell you a little bit about my company. Arise is a machine learning observability platform. With the adoption of AI ML at an all time high, It's more important than ever to understand how this technology is affecting your business. When models are deployed in production, we lose all sight of how they're actually performing. Even the engineers who built them couldn't tell you why they're buggy or not doing what they're supposed to do. Arise is here to help. By providing real-time analytics and observability, the Arise platform helps your team determine when, why, and how your models are performing we empower engineers to fix models with explainable analysis and catch upstream engineering issues. So if your team is fed up with the hours spent troubleshooting and debugging your models, you don't have to keep just hoping for the best. You can arise.
1: I'm going to shift gears a little bit and we'll, we'll bounce back, back and forth a little bit. One of the things that's very unusual about CrowdStrike is that you do have a combination of a product and a services model. Mm-hmm. And that's not common in a lot of other verticals for 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 cloud companies can you talk a little bit about the, the model how you chose that what some of the the advantages have been and also what some of the challenges have been
0: right so if you if you look at crowdstrike as a company it was founded as a cloud native endpoint security company right now it's moved to workload security but there was always a strategic piece that was doing professional services and today we are 90% subscription uh, service, and we're 10% time and material, and less than 10%. And the less than 10% are for things like I've been, bre- you know, customer comes, well, generally, they're not customers, they're prospects that come to us that say, we've had a breach, you know, can you help us? Uh, we got hit with ransomware, can you help us? I just had one this morning, law firm called me up, we got hit with ransomware, can you help us? So typically, what happens is that is a very strategic group that comes in, people are bleeding, they help them. It's like Ghostbusters, who are you gonna call? We help them, we we leverage our tools, we leverage our methodology, and they they say, wow, this is amazing, we want you to stay. We want this tool set to stay, because you figured it out, cleaned it all up, and got me back to health. And what we have put out publicly is that for every dollar of professional services, we convert that into over $3 of subscription revenue. Which is incredible right so that is, that is incredible and so it's almost lead gen for the for the software business exactly so I can I could conceivably make my professional services a lot bigger than it is, but we we self constrain it um, just because we want to keep you know a certain mixture right we we are people look at us and they look at our, our triple digit growth you know in the early days uh, of ARR and still it's, it's a massive scale you can look at the the numbers from the last public quarter and they look at that and say well you know, that's the value of the business. So I always want to constrain the, the professional services piece, but it is an amazing lead gen. And the difference in security is people are buying expertise and they're buying trust. And when you can come in and we've been called into companies that were basically blown off the map, 100,000 computers encrypted because their fossilized AV antivirus systems failed. We had to come in and help bring them back to health and I'm sitting in a board meeting with you know, Fortune 100 companies and telling them what they need to do, right? So that's very strategic and then that converts into very large you know, multi uh, seven figure uh, type ARR type deals. That makes a ton of sense. And
1: was managing this mix of services and product hard in the early days? I mean, you've
0: obviously perfected it now over time and you found the right balance. What was it like in the early days? Well, it's actually funny because I I sort of perfected it at foundstone, my first company. And when we were doing it there uh, and that at that time was a lot of uh, penetration testing, you know, testing for vulnerabilities. Um, When we were trying to raise money, people would always go, well, you have too much services and why do you have this? And how can you be a a technology company with services? They really didn't understand it. And then when I started CrowdStrike, I had some folks uh, like some VC guys go, well, you know, you should do what the Mandiant guys did. Like you should have technology and services. And it's like, okay, well, they, those guys came from my first company and that's where I did it and they took my idea and then ran with it, except they did it the opposite way and they, more, they were more on services than tech.
1: And there were more services than tech. I mean, I think what, what you've done so well, which is hard, is, is maintain the discipline around keeping services to be a small piece of the business and using it as a way to fuel the product. Exactly,
0: exactly. So when you, in the early days, so here, here's the lesson learned. In the early days, you really have to be clear with investors on the core technology and the fact that you will constrain the the services group because in the early days, when you look at your, your, your revenue, you're, you're just building your product, but you're generating services revenue. So you're going to have a skew and somebody looks at it. If they're, they're uninformed, they're going to wait a minute. Like you have this big service, you know, revenue number, Uh, big is relative, but you know, as a startup, it's much bigger than, you know, your, Uh, ARR, but you have to realize that there's going to be a flip, right? And you're going to be able to use this lead gen as as, uh, as a transition into a much bigger technology business. That makes sense. That, that, That makes a ton of sense. George, I'm going to switch gears and talk a little bit
1: maybe about sort of board dynamics. I mean, you've managed many boards and you're managing now a public company board. For most founders, they're managing their first board and... They're not sure if they're managing the board or the board's managing them, but that board dynamic is is generally a tough one for founders early on. Any lessons learned on that dimension?
0: Uh, yes. Um, what was your it, board like? What was your first board like? Well, what, I, I helped I helped pick it because again, lessons learned from my first company, um, we didn't I didn't have as much flexibility to pick the investors, and we had some investors where the boards the investor turned over, so we got we got you know, they were fine when we, when we invest, but they put different people in the board than were originally there. And, you know, if you're not there incubating it from the beginning, you don't really understand it. There's less of an emotional connection. And I, I believe we sold Foundstone too early, you know, so I didn't want to repeat that. So I think there's, I'm going to maybe answer this in two ways because there's how you pick your board is actually goes back to how you pick your early investors. One of the things that I learned from Foundstone was the early investors needed to basically they needed Foundstone as a as a 2000 fund as a 1999 or a 2000 fund they needed Foundstone in 2004 to have an exit because they needed that to go raise their a new fund for themselves because everything in 1999 and 2000 had had basically been written down to zero so we sold too early so when I started CrowdStrike. For me, it was, I'm going to handpick the investors, right? And, you know, I had success, so a lot more flexibility to be able to do that. You know, early investors were Werber Pincus, which is your a totally non-standard investor, but I knew them because they wanted to put um, 75 million into found while I was selling it to McAfee. And they always stayed in contact with me and they had a big checkbook. And, and the thing is they didn't need CrowdStrike to be successful to raise the next fund. And I didn't want to be pushed into a sale too early. And then we we got Excel in, and the Excel guys kept Samir Gandhi, He's fantastic. He, he kept pounding me, you know. Hey, we want to be in. Want to meet? Want to meet? And I put them off for like three months, and finally we met, and I liked him, and we got him in the deal. So those were the early board members that were the institutional folks, mm-hmm. right? So I wanted to make sure that whoever I took the money from, I was good with the board composition. And then from there, it was the outside investors. Our chairman is a guy that I worked with at McAfee. He he ran all the strategy and M and A. He retired after we sold McAfee to Intel, and he was a, a two-time public company CEO. I recruited one of the McAfee board members, who was the the old CIO for J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, some other the guy who ran sales for McAfee that I knew. So I was really focused on the people that I knew who I could trust and who knew me. Um, you know, who would call it straight, but who knew me and who knew the vision. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is we, and I always tell the story, the, um, our chairman, he put his own money in the deal and he didn't even know what the whole story was Like because I couldn't, I couldn't, he was still exiting McAfee. So I couldn't show him all the slides, you know, for, for his sake and my sake. And I showed him like nine slides out of 25 slides. He's like, okay. You know, and he, and he wrote a big check just, just because Trusted you trusted you. You trusted me, yeah. So, it, it, you know, that, that's kind of how we were able to put the board together. And then over time, we brought other board members on, you know, with public company experience. And before we went public, we uh, brought on Roxanne Austin, who is our audit chair. She's unbelievable. She, because um, you need know, a you know, great public company audit chair. And she actually was on the board of Target when they had the breach and was actually running Target when the CEO was asked to leave. So she knew security, she knew public companies, she knew governance. And, you know, I've just been lucky to be able to handpick a great board.
1: That's, that's, that's fabulous. Uh, can, can we go back to the Foundstone selling story? It sounded like you're saying you didn't want to sell, but you were under pressure from your investors to sell. Can you walk through that dynamic and what that experience was like?
0: Yeah, it was, it, it was really split. There were, there were some folks who didn't want to sell. I didn't really want to sell. And I mean, in retrospect, you know, the journey had all worked out well for me. But I thought we were selling too early. I thought there was a lot more runway. And you know, if you if you look forward to today, I mean, vulnerability management's a pre- pretty big market. It's not the biggest yep. market that I'm in now. Although we we now service that, we added a module that does that. Um, and you know, we got an offer from an inbound from McAfee. It was at the time it was decent, but I thought there was still more to go. And there was a lot of consternation and should we sell? And it was just a ton of pressure from from the early investors because they had no wins in that, in their 2000 funds, they were all wiped out. So we were the only thing that was gonna return capital and there was, you know, it was just a ton of pressure of, you know, let's just get this deal done and let's get it sold. And I think it would have been very difficult to be with those investors had the deal not gone through. But at the same time, you know, again, lessons learned for people listening is, is you have a lot more control than you might think as a founder right? If you don't want to sell, you know, you don't necessarily have to sell. And if somebody's going to try to jam a sale because they have the right to do that in in investor documents on paper, they might, but that doesn't mean this this thing is going to work out and be successful. Right. So, and the buyer is not going to want somebody who's just getting jammed. So I think people need to realize they do have more choices and, you know, I was split on it. Um, and it, it worked out. It was fine. It wasn't, uh, I mean, it was for a decent amount of money, So it wasn't like an asset sale or anything, but you know, my takeaway on that is make sure you have the right investors for your deal as best you can. And sometimes the cards are not in your favor. Um, And two is as a founder, you have a lot more control over when you sell than you think. Absolutely.
1: You know, one of the things I always tell all of my CEOs is look at the end of the day, our role as investors is to support that vision. And, we never want to keep going if founders want to sell because once the founders decide to sell, then it doesn't make sense for right. the investors to push you to keep going. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if the founders want to keep going, usually there's more upside. I mean, they're yes. in the business, they have an intuitive sense of, of, of what's going on. I've rarely seen founders want to keep going and then end up in a, sort of in a worse outcome.
0: I would agree with that. And I think, you know, just to put a fine point on the board members, you need to find board members who share your vision and think big. And that was, you know, what we were doing in 2011 when we started this and and where we are today is, is a big vision, right? It is no one at scale thought, you know, we would be handling 3 trillion events per week into our cloud, right? It's ridiculous amount. We handle more events in a day than Twitter has tweets in an entire year. I mean, think about the scale, right? So, no one thought that was even possible. And, you know, uh, we could have sold the company. We weren't out selling the company for, you know, since I started, because I really didn't have an interest in doing that. But I could have easily had the thing sold, you know, early into the deal. But we had investors who, you know, again, saw the long-term vision and that were playing for, you know, they weren't playing for the singles. They were playing for, you know, <laughs> who, is, right, who, who's, who can be the next service now, who can be the next sales force in their own group. And that was key to make sure that we had alignment of the vision where it wasn't, you know, at a billion valuation we had, and then we were 3 billion. I mean, those are real numbers, right? And we went public, obviously we went public for a lot more, but uh, anything above a billion arguably can be a great return for a lot of people with preferences and everything else. You know, there's can be a lot of pressure there, but people looked at it and said, okay, we're not playing for the billion. We're playing for the multiples of billions and, and that number, kept going up of what that would be. And then, you know, got so big, it's like, okay, well, IPO is in the cards, here we go. So that's,
1: that's definitely been a great story. Tell us a little bit about, you know, every company as it goes through its scaling process, goes through multiple phases, and you often have to turn over parts of your executive team, you have to sort of change the way you do things during the scaling up. Can you talk a little bit about the scale up journey?
0: Yeah. You, I think what's important to realize is that you've got to scale in each phase, right? So you've got to get the company off the ground. You need a lot of evangelical folks. I think when we went public, we had a launch team of 20 people. They were all here. None of them had left. You know, those were a lot of the technical folks and, you know, but you have, you're going to have early people in the organization who just like startups and you know, just get it done and less process. And then as you get bigger and you're scaling it, you have more process and more people And then, you know, at some point when you're really in harvest mode, you know, it gets even bigger. So you just have to figure out the right people for the company. I I was lucky, you know, on the executive team, we had a core set of people who had experience both in startup and public companies and could go the distance to get the company public. And uh, that's worked out really well because it's been good continuity there. But I think through the organization, you know, you always have to be thinking about who's in the seat and are they in the right position? I would say one of my lessons learned is I've, I've never I've never made a mistake moving someone on too early. And typically it's I waited too long, you know. Yep. Just human nature, right? So my view is to to try to make it a little bit more empirical and less emotional is knowing what I know about that person today, would I hire them for that role? And it's a simple question. I think about it every day. And if the answer is no, then generally it's like, okay, we need to think about a transition. Maybe they they were fantastic for zero to a hundred, um, but they're not great from a hundred to five hundred, or they're great from a hundred to five hundred, but not five hundred to a billion. And doesn't make 'em doesn't make them bad people. It just means that I wouldn't hire that person for the role today, knowing what I know about them and knowing where we're going. And I think that level of discipline has has served me pretty well because it's, you know, you want to, when people move on, you want to do it with dignity and, you know, in class, which is, which is what needs to be done. But you also have to realize that you can't, if you have someone on the team too long, it impacts the entire team. Yep. And you know, when someone, when someone goes that people look at, you know, they might have their own challenges or whether or not they've, they've topped out in terms of their potential for that role at that time. There's a, there's a sigh of relief from the collective organization where they go, okay, Now we understand, you know, people are paying attention and we're going to go to the next level. But
1: I, you know, you you said something which is very simple but very profound, just this ability to ask yourself the question, Would I rehire this person for this job, knowing what I know about them and about where I'm headed? Because where you're headed is changing as well. Right. Your needs are changing and that combination, that ability to have that conversation with yourself is not something that most CEOs do often. How, do you just program that into your life? How do you, how do you make that happen?
0: Well, it's, yeah, from, from scars and, you know, I mean, I would say that, you know, that would be one takeaway that I would make sure that everybody, you know, if they listen to this podcast, it's one, one lesson learned for entrepreneurs and founders is to, it's to just think about that because I happened along that, you know, always made plenty of mistakes, you know, I think I have a better batting average, you know, in hiring people than, and in, in good people than not. But, you know, again, either you make a mistake or they were great for that period of time. And you have to have the discipline. It's what I've seen, you know, over time. And again, you talk to CEO after CEO, I guarantee you, whoever you have on this program before me or after, if you ask them, you know, did you ever fire somebody too early? They'll say, no, I, I, I was I just yeah. waited too long. Right. So, you know, for me, I needed, a, I needed a kind of a reference, which was not emotional. It isn't, a, you know, whether, you know. Bob or Sue is, is good or bad, right. Or I like them or not. It's, you know, if I, if I had to clear the deck and I had to hire that position now, are they the right person? And if you just think about it that way, it, it makes it really clear on what you need to do. And, you know, that's, I think that's served me really well as we've scaled the company.
1: I think that's a very helpful frame of reference. George, security has changed a lot over the last decade. I mean, 10 years ago, there were very few public companies in security and now, you know, there's, I think you ever take 40 or so significant public companies in, in security.
0: What do you see as you look out to the future? First, let me start with, um, I was so lucky to get into security and you know, I just was for- fortunate with all the stuff that happened in my career, but it was, it's been a great industry and it's very dynamic and it's ever changing. And the, the thing about the industry is you're, you're, you're fighting, you're fighting the bad guys. Right. And this is, I think really important in security and it's something, um, and I'll answer your question in more detail, but I sure. just want to want to riff on this for a moment it's b- because there's a mission and purpose. It's something that you have to include in your culture. And that's one of the things that we did. We call it our mission because we're not building just regular software. We're literally you're helping
1: building a video game. You're, right.
0: you're, you are, you're saving people from the bad guys. Exactly. So, So that mission and purpose was really important in our company early and it is today. And I think making sure that people understand what they're doing in the security space and having that as a frame of reference is important. Um, The second thing is it's a really crowded space. You know, you go to RSA, there's probably four or 5,000 and RSA is the security conference uh, big one. And, you know, every year there's four four or 5,000 companies in there. And when you start the company, you have to realize, you know, what is it? What do you think it is today? What do you think it can be? And just be honest with yourself because the majority of the companies that are there are probably 98, 99% are feature companies, right? They're never going to, they're going to get bought and they're a feature. They're not necessarily a company. And it's okay to start a company, own a bunch of it and sell it for, you know, 50, 100, 200 million, whatever the number is that, you, that the founder is happy with. And the investor is happy with, you can get a great return and, you know, high uh, IRR, you know, limited tonnage of cash, but that may be your business model. But I think just being honest of what this thing is and what it can be is important when you get into it. So you're not disappointed because I, I, I talked to a lot of folks in security and it's like, Oh yeah, we're going to IPO this company. I know how hard it is to IPO the company There's only 40, as you say, like, and there's a lot of companies out there and there's a lot that are never going to get there for a variety of reasons. So is, is nothing wrong with building a company going, Hey, I'm going to build it. And in four or five years, I'm going to sell it. Everybody knows what the deal is. It's where people go, okay, I'm going to build this thing and it's going to be this great you know, public company, but there's just not enough there. You look at enough companies, look at the TAM, are they a platform, are they a feature, are they a point product, who's the competition? Um, you know, if you can't, in my opinion, if you can't build a platform company with a big TAM, you're just going to be sold off. So let's just be honest about it. So that, that's kind of thinking about security, great space, very crowded, but figure out what your niche is and then figure out what exit you want realistically. And you may have aspirations to be public, which is fine, but let's just make sure your aspirations meet reality.
1: I think that's a great point. I think, you know, in particular, as you said, in security, there's so many features. And by the way, because the bad guys keep changing their behavior and they get smarter, right. there's always a need for the next feature. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you're if you're investing as if you're a platform, but the, your reality is that of a the feature, then you start having the tension of where you've raised too much money, your cap table is such that a small outcome isn't actually attractive for people. And I think that disconnect happens more often than it should. Correct, absolutely agree. I'm gonna take one last question actually, since you talked about the customer part, and I I realize that's that's a piece we haven't touched on much. Uh, And again, it's one of those challenges for technical CEOs. It's not natural or obvious to them that they should be spending a lot of time with customers. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how much time you spend, how that's evolved over time, and really maybe focusing on the early days because now you're, I mean, you're crossing $600 million in revenue run rate. So it's, it's a very different company.
0: Yeah. For me, it's all about the customer and it's the customer engagement In the early days you have to go out and, you know, you're the CEO, you got to go sell the company um, products. Right. And you got to get the feedback and figure out what works. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm lucky enough and fortunate to be in a position where I understand the technology really well, but I understand the the sales and the marketing and the business end of it. Right. So, I think the biggest skill gaps that I've seen in a lot of founders and and CEOs is that they might just understand the technology or they might be just, you know, salespeople. They don't really, they don't understand how to put all that stuff together, right? So for me, it's the voice of the customer and really understanding what, what is the outcome they're looking for? What's the problem you're trying to solve and how can you get there in a way that makes sense for them? You know, biggest thing is, and you know, this as an investor is you want to see somebody take their wallet out and, and put money on the table for what you built. Um, so how do you get there? So I spent a lot of time in the early days and even, even today, um, I spend more time with customers than ever. And it's like, you know, a thank you, B tell me what you like, tell me what you don't like. And you know, where, where do you see the industry going? And I, I synthesize all that information. Then I go back and work with the product teams and help them organize and prioritize. Right. Cause I, I have a pretty good year for where the industry is going and what needs to happen. Um, so I spent a lot of time with the customers and then even thinking about the business model, again, we didn't spend a lot of time on that, but you know, huge lesson learned for me is never have perpetual licenses, right. And, uh, only have subscription and that that's what we live by It's subscription only. And it makes it a lot easier in challenging times, but you know, you have to have a feel for that from the customer and how they, they want to buy it as a CapEx, as OpEx, how do you work with them? Um, and having that subscription is, you know, base really important. And as a subscription company, you live and die by your churn rates, right? And, or yeah. your net retention rates, we have extremely high net retention rates. You know, again, you can look at all the public numbers that are out there, but we do that because we have happy customers that we can sell more stuff to. And that's all part of our business model. So when we look, when I, when I talk to a customer, you know, I want to know that they're taken care of. I want to know that I want them to know they can call me anytime. Uh, but I also want to think about what are the other things they should be buying from us and how do we continue along that journey of our net retention rates and our renewal rates, right? Because that's as a SaaS company, that's what we live and die by. And if you're not touching the customer, where, where I see companies go awry is they'll sell a one-year deal or a three-year deal and then they don't show up until you know, the renewal is due next week and it's you know no one you want a high churn rate that's a that's a there's your formula right there so we have a lot of touch points from all the executives we have executive sponsors for all our deals we have multiple touch points every quarter and for me everything is formulaic and scripted and there's no sales is a science it's not a random thing that happens right so that's really what i try to do with the company in understanding what the customer needs are and making sales friction free and formulaic and and you know driving our cost of sale down. So that's, that's why I spent a lot of time in the field.
1: It makes sense. And you talked a little bit about the fact that you're subscription only, and, and you know, have never had perpetual deals, it sounds like. Uh, that must have been an interesting challenge in security where people are used to buying, especially when you started off, people bought hardware and software in a combined package, a custom appliance. And those custom appliances usually had perpetual deals. Right. So you were changing the business model for the industry early, early on.
0: Exactly and it's one of those where again two things that I would point out to founders and and CEOs is number one is if you're a SaaS company be a SaaS company don't have don't have on-premise and that's a delivery model but also have a revenue model that's a SaaS model. So don't take what you have and try to sell it as a perpetual and I I had so many customers come to us and say well we just want you know an ELA. we just want to buy an all-you-can-eat license we want this we want that and it's like no here's our here's our model. You can buy a one year, or you can buy a three year, right? Well, we only have capex. Well, fine. We can work with you or a partner that you know will help you capitalize that. But you know, we get paid every year, or we get paid up front, and that's our business model. So we have the discipline not to deviate from that. And I think you really need to align the revenue model, subscription, with the delivery model, non-perpetual, you know, cloud delivered. And if you're disciplined on that you will have a much greater chance for success and you'll have a much greater outcome as you grow the company. This has been
1: a great conversation, George. You, you obviously have a ton of experience and I could keep asking questions, but I want to be sensitive to your time. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with our listeners.
0: Happy to share it. I think maybe the next podcast, it could be a, a full couple hours on the IPO process because there's a lot of lessons learned on that one. Uh, but, uh, you know, happy to come back anytime and thanks for uh, the invite. Thank you very
1: much, and we'd love to take you up on that and actually do a deep dive just on the IPO process. That'd be a great one to do.
0: Fantastic, thank you, we'll talk soon.
1: That's it for this episode. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. B2B as CEO is brought to you by Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with 27 IPOs, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMobile, and Sunrise. I'm Asher Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're interested in growing from a technical founder into a business leader, drop me a line. Thanks, and see you next time.